Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 49. Tribal Diplomacy. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you enjoy the show, then please consider signing up for membership. It costs $4.99 per month and gives you access to exclusive premium episodes. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. In our last episode, we covered the United Colonies of New England as they made their way through the nullification controversy, faced off against the Dutch and Indians, and into the 1660s. Today, we turn to the New England colony that was left out of the Puritan League, Rhode Island. We last covered Rhode Island way back in episode 35, so perhaps a brief refresher is in order. In 1636, Roger Williams fled from the other colonies of New England to Narragansett Bay, where he founded Providence Plantation. Williams had several major objections to the other colonies, which he intended to fix. He objected to the way Puritanism had infested the governments of New England. Religion was a private matter, and had nothing to do with the state. He also disapproved of the oligarchical nature of the New England governments, particularly Massachusetts. The pastors had too much power. In Providence Plantation, there would be religious freedom, and it would be democratic. There was very little actual governance in the area of Rhode Island, but when it was time for government, it would be done by the shareholders in the colony, in other words, the landed men. This doesn't seem that radical to us, but it was at the time. Over the years, many others seeking religious freedom would flee to Narragansett Bay, and by 1643, four settlements had been established. These were Providence, Newport, Portsmouth, and Warwick. We call this Rhode Island, although it would take quite a while for this collection of villages to understand itself as the colony of Rhode Island, or even to view the founding of Rhode Island as happening in 1636. The first history of Rhode Island was written in 1738, a date considered the colony's 100th anniversary. Rhode Island is, essentially, a bay around an island which was known as a quidneck, but for reasons which are a complete mystery to us, was renamed Rhode Island. The other townships were based on the island, and were economically more important than Providence, which was located on the mainland. The first of these townships, Plymouth, was founded in 1638, so for some time this was regarded as a more appropriate foundation date. This attitude is found in other places. When the colony finally received a royal charter in 1666, it had the name The Colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantation. Rhode Island gets top billing over Providence. There are also a few who would view the foundation of the colony as dating to William Blackstone, who arrived in the region before Williams, but no serious historian actually thinks this. Blackstone may have been the first European to live on Narragansett Bay, 
but he travelled there from Boston to escape the crowds, not found a community. He might have lived there, and he is worth an interesting footnote, but no more than this. Williams had received more recognition for founding the first settlement in the region, and he also did much to organise its infrastructure by securing a patent for Providence in 1644. I hope what this is making clear is that Rhode Island had a very turbulent history. We only gave this a scant overview in episodes 34 and 35, where I briefly summarised the confrontations between Rhode Island and Providence by the political battles in the 1650s between Williams and William Coddington, the founder of Newport. But, as I've said, I want to get into more detail today. There were a couple of other things I missed in our first run-through. For example, I never really talked about the process by which the land was actually acquired. Not the process by which the European granted lands that they had no right to, but the process by which the land was secured from the Native Americans. To explain that, we need to get a bit into Native American history. It's a shame that there are only a few pre-Columbian civilizations that we have a reasonable understanding of. We simply don't know most of the history of Narragansett Bay, but we do begin to understand the situation from the early 16th century. There were two tribal groups in the region, both of whom we've already dealt with at various points during the show. These were the Wampanoags and the Narragansetts. We spent a great deal of time talking about the Narragansetts in our last episode. The Wampanoags lived on the eastern side of the bay and the Narragansetts lived on the western side. It wasn't what you'd call a peaceful relationship and warfare took place between the two tribes for control of the islands in the bay and the coastline. We know that the Wampanoags were the more powerful of the two tribes in the 1520s, but after this initial investigation, there wasn't much interest in the region for the following hundred years. The next insight to the region we have is the arrival of the Pilgrims, and it seems as though the balance of power had greatly changed in the intervening century, mostly due to the Great Plague which had devastated the Wampanoags. You'll recall that Plymouth was set up on what was a deserted settlement in his book Colonial Rhode Island, a history, part of a history of the American colonies in 13 volumes. Sidney James estimates that there were about 25,000 Native Americans living in New England at this time. The largest tribe in the region was the Narragansett tribe, which had a population of about 5,000, condensed in an area 20 miles west of the bay and 60 miles inland. It was one of the highest population concentrations on the North American continent. In comparison, the Wampanoag population was something just under 1500. This explains the geopolitical context, but there is a greater point to all of this. Rhode Island wasn't empty. This was a crowded area. Much American mythology centres on taking untouched land. We'll deal with this a great deal down the line, but this wasn't remotely true here. In fact, it was the least true it would ever be during the European conquest of the continent. 
It wasn't a case of Williams, Coddington, and the other founders of Rhode Island just going to an empty area and setting up shop. The native tribes had to actively make room for them. Why? The explanation is both very simple and very complicated at the same time. The Wampanoag's reason for going along with it is obvious. They were far weaker than their traditional enemy, the Narragansetts. They wanted a buffer and were more than happy to give up land, which they claimed, to Williams, to get someone in between them and the enemy, but which in practice they could not possibly hope to control themselves. Understanding the Narragansetts is a bit more complicated, and it requires both knowledge of Indian diplomacy and a great deal of what we discussed last week. I don't think I need to explain to anybody listening that the Native Americans were not stupid. Their civilization may have been less developed than the Europeans, and the Europeans may treat them as idiotic savages, but they weren't stupid. The Narragansetts immediately understood both that these new arrivals to the region were a threat, and that some were more threatening than others. One colony bothered them in particular. Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the largest, and it was growing the quickest, and it was the most hostile. In our last episode, Massachusetts didn't actively declare war against the Narragansetts, well aware that they could be destroyed, but they did kill a Narragansett leader, and they were sure that there was some sort of conspiracy going on to destroy them. The Puritans were very frightful. As more and more Puritans poured into New England, they pushed west, and tensions became more tense. With the Narragansetts, they tried to deal with the Europeans so that they could define their relationship, but the Europeans couldn't understand the diplomatic system. So this, a tense relationship with Massachusetts, was the first issue. The second lay to the west. There was another powerful tribe to the west of the Narragansetts. These were the Pequots. The Narragansetts were far more concerned with the Pequots than with the Wampanoags, and even Massachusetts was of secondary importance compared to this new threat. They had a clear ordering of priorities. The third factor was that while they disliked the Puritans, they got on very well with Williams. He had traded with them and helped them to ease relationships with Massachusetts. They would even briefly unite against the Pequots. So, when Williams was forced out of New England, and he asked for land, it made perfect sense for them to grant Williams a strip of land on their eastern territory. He was a friend. It would place someone between them and Massachusetts, who could act as an intermediary between them, and it secured the eastern border so that they could give their undivided attention to the west. The Narragansetts would treat Williams very well over the years, and when he asked for more land on the islands in the bay, they complied, and in return, Williams gave gifts back. He had a greater understanding of Indian diplomacy than most. They could use this settlement to get access to English trade, and it would have the benefit of being a buffer between themselves and the Wampanoags. James sums it up very neatly when he remarks that it would be realistic to view Rhode Island as a creation of Narragansett Indian policy. 
Now that is a version of the founding of America you will rarely hear. The land was also rather useful. All the townships were established near sources of water, and there was access to the sea for all of them, as well as land for crops and livestock. The colony was well situated, and we will cover its material development in a few episodes' time, as we establish a look at the economic and political life of the settlement. But before we do that, there is something we have to do first. There is a topic which we need to cover, and it is too late for me to get into it now, so I will instead end this episode with a word of warning about the next episode. The historian has to be an expert in everything. There is no subject outside of history. It's important to understand political dynamics, economics, and the practicalities of military operations as mere basics. And even this will leave you with a hopelessly imbalanced understanding of history, as you might believe that the only people who matter were kings and armies. Just as important is to understand agriculture and social dynamics. You can then get sidetracked into any realm of possibilities, all of which it is important to know to truly understand the character of the people you're dealing with. This is why... Next time, we will be forced to deal with something I personally have very little understanding of. Yes, it will be time for our second theology cast. I find theology to be one of the more confusing subjects out there, but that doesn't mean that it can't be ignored. We will instead try to make sense of the religious goings-on in Rhode Island, since it is really impossible to understand Rhode Island without it. But as I say, all of that has to wait until next time. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then remember that there are many ways of supporting the show. The simplest is to just leave an iTunes review. Most people listen to the show on iTunes and hear about the show on iTunes. If you leave a review, it helps push the show up on the chart so more people can see it. And, you know, it also lets people know that this little show is actually alright. So, if you feel that way, you can just search the show on iTunes and leave a star rating. It takes seconds. And if you want to do a little bit more, you can leave an attached written review. You can also support the show on social media by liking the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and follow me on Twitter at HistoryJamie. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, then you can send me an email. The address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you want to financially support the show, then you can just sign up to the membership program. Go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 